Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. Um, hello from the Stockwell service. We're really looking forward to being with you next week for Love London. It's always a real highlight of us to come here. Thank you for hosting us, as always. Um, highlight for me is definitely baptisms. They're just incredible to see people's lives changed by Jesus and get to dunk them and bring them up again. Um, so, yeah, please do come along next week. It'll be great uh, to see you there. Um, so today we are continuing our current teaching series, uh, which we have called uh, The Prince of Peace. Um, so it's all about finding peace through Jesus. And uh, soon we're going to be moving on to thinking about um, kind of peace out there. So how we f- kind of create and sustain and make peace between communities, us and creation, between men and women. But we just want to take a couple more weeks looking at kind of the internal peace, the peace that we are told can be ours for those of us who follow Jesus. Now, you don't need me to outline again all the ways in which the world that we are living in is able to create feelings of fear and anxiety within us. And as we've been hearing over the last few weeks, it has been the church's message for 2,000 years that in Jesus there is kind of this promise of this real, lasting, robust peace so that we don't have to live kind of controlled by our fear and anxiety. David last week referred to one of the most famous passages on this in the scriptures, and I'm actually going to talk about that again. Um, It's from the book of Philippians. So the Apostle Paul wrote this as a letter to the church in Philippi, which was a church in ancient Greece under Roman occupation. This is Philippians 4. We'll come up on the screen behind me. Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, he says, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Don't be anxious about anything, Paul says. So the Greek word that he uses there for anxious means to be pulled in different directions or to be distracted by many things or to be divided into different parts, which completely resonates with me when I think back to the periods of my life where I have been most anxious. Those times where I felt the most pressure of having so many things going on, vying for my attention that I don't just don't know what to get to first and feeling like I'm not getting to anything well. Or those kind of that feeling where there's all of this stuff going on, I have just no power, no control over any of it. I remember living for a season with a constant feeling of just, I'm not doing anything well, I'm not doing things good enough. And so that kind of bleeds into, well, I don't feel like I'm enough, I'm not good enough. I found in those times that my body physically reacted to this sense of anxiety and fear. So that I couldn't get to sleep at night, and then I wake up like stupid early in the morning, my mind kind of instantly straight on. I just kind of go through the day feeling exhausted, needing a lot of caffeine to get me through. And then my personal default way of dealing with this, which is a good way, just top tip, is I comfort eat. So that's where I go. Or I just find I spend a lot of time just sat in front of a screen, trying to kind of ignore what is going on. Now, I don't know if you can relate to any of that, if that kind of resonates with you. Um, if you've had seasons of your life like that, maybe there are some of us here today having a season of our life like that right now. And in this passage, Paul appears to promise us peace. And the word here he uses means to join or to tie together. It's kind of the direct opposite of anxiety. 
means to bring things back together into a coherent whole. And the Hebrew equivalent of this is the Hebrew word shalom, which is just this beautiful word. And it carries within it the idea of everything being as it should be, everything in its right place, including everything in me in its right place. And I know what it's like to read something like Philippians 4 when you are going through a period of anxiety. And uh, you kind of, this offer of peace is kind of held before you, a peace that transcends all understanding. And you're thinking, yes, yes, I want that. Okay, Jesus, give me the peace. The peace, where's the peace? Give me the peace. I, I want the peace. And the peace doesn't appear to come. And actually praying about stuff that you are feeling anxious about just leads you to thinking about all those things which you are anxious about. And prayer leads to more anxiety rather than less. Don't know if you've ever had that experience. So what do we need to do? Well, in this passage, Paul says to the Philippians that they are to pray in every situation, kind of continuously to pray, to always be reflecting on what is good and pure and noble, to continually be putting into practice the way of life that he, Paul, has modeled to them. Paul here links kind of ongoing peace with ongoing habits of peace. Now, just to flag up here that I'm not going to touch upon today at all kind of medical treatment for anxiety. Not because that isn't important, not because that is kind of a very valid and I believe God-given way to help some people through kind of periods of anxiety. We'd encourage anyone suffering from long-term anxiety or like really kind of powerful, deep anxiety to speak to their GP to investigate kind of medical solutions to this. But that's really not my area of expertise, so I'm going to leave that to like the medical profession. Um, and this morning, I'm just going to talk about creating habits of peace. And I do think, actually, that this can work in tandem with medical treatment as well. So I'm hoping that if you are kind of being treated medically for anxiety, then this will help you too. So then, habits of peace. It feels like over the last few years, kind of in the, the church world, which I'm obviously a part of, but also in the workplace, that there's been this kind of emphasis and awareness on the way that our habits shape our lives. I've read a number of books recently that talk about how it's the things that we do over and over and actually unthinkingly and kind of automatically that can have the most dramatic effect on the way that we live and the people that we are becoming. And so if we do want to change, if we do want to become people who don't respond automatically to like what's going on around us with anxiety and fear, then it is not enough to just kind of ask God to download peace into us matrix style. That would be really helpful, but that's, I don't think that's the way it works. It's not even enough just to kind of change our thinking about this. We need to be reformed from the ground up, which takes kind of a long time, which none of us want to hear, but it's the process of change. We need to adopt new habits of prayer, reflection, and actually of behavior that work to join us back together. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that what we think is not important. That is a really important part of the process, but that is not the entirety of the process. We also need to change our habits and behaviors because it's our habits that either work to reinforce what we think and believe or work to counteract them. I've got um, a three-minute video clip here of a guy called Destin Sandlin, which is the most American-sounding name, um, trying to ride a backwards bike, which I think will kind of help explain what I'm talking about. Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill and I was really proud of it. Everything changed though when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses and they like to play jokes on the engineers. He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. 
I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Destin Salem. First attempt riding the bicycle. I couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. Look, I know what you're probably thinking. Destin's probably just an uncoordinated engineer and can't do it, but that's not the case at all. The algorithm that's associated with riding a bike in your brain is just that complicated. I do not make definitive statements that often, but I'm telling you right now, you cannot ride this bicycle. I know this because I'm often asked to speak at universities and conferences and I take the bike with me. It's always the same. People think they're gonna try some trick or they're just gonna power through it. It doesn't work. Your brain cannot handle this. Once you have a rigid way of thinking in your head, sometimes you cannot change that, even if you want to. Here's what I did. It was a personal challenge. I stayed out here in this driveway and I practiced about five minutes every day. My neighbors made fun of me. I had many wrecks, but after eight months, this happened. One day I couldn't ride the bike and the next day I could. It was like I could feel some kind of pathway in my brain that was now unlocked. It was really weird though. It's like there's this trail in my brain, but if I wasn't paying close enough attention to it, my brain would easily lose that neural path and jump back onto the old road it was more familiar with. Any small distractions at all, like a cell phone ringing in my pocket, would instantly throw my brain back to the old control algorithm and I would wreck, but at least I could ride it. So obviously, knowing that kind of turning the handlebars left and the wheel goes right, that's not enough. Like we all know that now, but none of us could ride this bike because it's actually, we need to kind of make new neurological pathways to train ourselves in that kind of way of thinking and being so that actually we can make kind of micro adjustments in the moment without thinking that kind of bypass the thought process, the decision-making process, and we do it automatically. So this is what happens to Destin after months and months of practice. And it happens because our brains are very good at turning behaviors that we choose and do over and over again into habits that become unthinking habits. One study from Duke University suggested that as much as 40% of our daily actions are not the products of intentional kind of well thought through decision, but the products of habits. Things we have chosen kind of way, again, way in the background and now we just do out of habit. Now for most part, this is a great thing as it frees up our brain to kind of focus all of its power on other things. But it obviously does have its downsides. If we have a bad habit, then we don't really have much power to fight back in the moment because as soon as the thing happens, we react before we've even thought about it. And so the battle's over before it's even started. Um, then if you heard that Destin said that his thinking was in a rut, that expression comes for when horses pulled carts and they'd pull them along the mud and they'd literally make ruts or tracks in the ground. And so if you're going this way, it's great, horse can go really fast. If you try and go this way, that doesn't happen without a lot of effort because you're literally stuck in a rut. And that happens with our brains as well. Our habits form neurological pathways. So like this thing happens and we react and they've got this pathway going this way. If we want to react in a different way to jump out of that rut, that takes a whole lot of skill and a pain often and a lot of practice. So for example, I may come to believe in my head that God loves me no matter what I do. That I am not defined by my work or by other people's opinion of me, but defined by his love. 
that God is for me and will always be with me, that he is sovereign over all things and is working together all things for the good of those who love him. I may come to believe this in my head, but if my habits are saying another thing, if my habits are saying that I need to keep striving and keep achieving in order to be loved, or what other people think about me defines me, or that because life is chaotic and scary, I need to control as much as possible and do all that I can to make sure that myself and the ones that I love don't suffer, then in the end, my heart and actually my body will believe my habits rather than my head. Which means I don't just need new information to help me become less anxious and more peaceful. I need new habits. And this is just what a guy called Justin Ely discovered, which led him to write this book, The Common Rules. It's only been out a couple of weeks now. Um, seriously, I can't recommend this enough. If anything I say resonates in any way, buy this book and work through it with some friends. I, I think it can change your life. I really do. So in the opening chapter of The Common Rule, Justin explains how he was working with his wife, Laura, in China as a missionary there, where he felt, in his words, a call from God to become a missionary to the corporate space instead. So he came back to America. He studied at Georgetown uh, University, which is one of like, the most prestigious law schools in the world. He like, worked super, super hard and kind of fueled by this sense of purpose. He graduated top of his class. He got this amazing job in like, one of the best law firms in Virginia, and he became a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. And he explains that in one way, he was living his dream, feel like he was living out his calling from God to be in the workplace. And he had a seemingly successful career. He had a growing family, ends up with four boys. And yes, he was working hard. And yes, he wasn't sleeping all that well, all that much, because he was up late into the night and up early in the morning. Uh, yes, there wasn't much kind of time off or rest over weekends. His clients were already always getting in touch. And yes, he had started to rely on sleeping pills and alcohol to get him to sleep at night because his mind just wouldn't switch off. You know, apart from those minor things, everything was going really well. And it just felt to him that in order to live this life, doing what I'm doing at this life stage, well, this is just what people like me have to do. We have to work this way in order to get this kind of result. But then the anxiety attack started, and he started reacting really badly to the sleeping pills and having kind of these massive mood swings, just kind of bursting into tears at random moments, get home from the office at the end of the day and wouldn't be any good to anyone, didn't know where the dishes went anymore. And it was at that point that he realized that God can't have been calling him to live like this. He just can't be. Because it wasn't helping him love God or those around him more. And it was actually taking this immense toll on him, a brutal toll on his physical, mental, and spiritual health. And so he realized that if he was going to keep on going, which he felt he needed to do, still be a lawyer, still be a dad, still be a husband, then he would need to change many of the habits that he kind of just fallen into unthinkingly the habits that had been given to him whilst at law school and like early days in his law firm, the habits that everyone else had expected him to have, but actually the habits that weren't good for him. This is what he says about that point in his life. Only in retrospect did I realize that while the house of my life was decorated with Christian content, the architecture of my habits were just like everyone else's. And so he thought, I need to build new habits based upon what I know of God and the way of Jesus and the life with him. Habits that would allow him to continue to be a great lawyer, but also a great husband and a great dad. Would allow him to write a book at the same time as doing all of that, for goodness sake, and yet without this feeling of anxiety. And I guess it probably won't come as a surprise to you that many of his habits centered around relating well to the one thing that I can almost guarantee all of us own. 
the one thing that is always within arm's reach, even when we sleep. The one thing that probably has the most powerful and unexamined influence upon our daily habits and therefore our spiritual formation and our physical and mental health. And of course, I'm talking about this, the smartphone. So according to a report on the use of digital technology in the UK published by Ofcom last year, whilst a decade ago only 17% of us had a smartphone, as of last year, 2018, that was 78% of the population in the UK overall, 95% of 16 to 24-year-olds. And it's not just the number of people who own one, but the amount of time that we spend on it. So 71% of the people surveyed say they never turn their phone off. Quick show of hands. How many people in the last week, not because your phone has died, but you have intentionally turned your phone off? Yeah, there's not many. What about the last month? The last year? And not because you were flying as well. Like an intentional turning off. Okay, so I have an iPhone. I'm sure many of you do. This is how you do it. There's a button at the top. If you hold that down and look, slide to power off. Okay, everyone do that now. Exactly, exactly. How does that feel? The thought of turning your phone off. Nengi is vocal. I mean, what does that mean for us if we can't turn our phones off? I'd imagine that most of us would probably admit we are on our phone more than we want to be, right? More than we want to be. Not more than we should be, but more than we want to be. So in a different survey, London was identified as the city in the UK most addicted to social media. 43% of people admitting that social media distracts them from sleeping at night. So a while ago, um, Apple introduced the screen time function in the iPhone. So it documents exactly how many times you pick it up, what you're looking at, how long you are. Um, so this next picture is mine. I've redacted this information. <laughs> There's no way I'm being that kind of vulnerable with this room of people. But I dare you to do this. Settings, screen time, screen grab, send that to a friend. I mean, how does that make you feel? Someone else knowing exactly how much time you have spent this week looking at this screen. I mean, when I first did that, I was like, seriously? Is that long? Oh, my goodness. Okay, another quick show of hands. Get off this for a minute. Uh, how many people remember the Flintstones? What about the Jetsons? Okay, more than in the Stockwell service. Um, so Jetsons was made by the same production company as the Flintstones, which you can definitely tell. Um, the only real difference is the setting. So you have Stone Age versus Space Age, and you kind of replace all the dinosaurs with robots. But pretty much everything else is exactly the same, kind of almost same family, kind of same scrapes they get into. And this is pretty much how every sci-fi film you have ever watched thinks about the future of technology. Technology can increase exponentially, but the way we are and the way we relate to one another just stays exactly the same, as if technology has no influence upon that whatsoever. And this is known as the Jetsons fallacy, because it ignores that technology always, always has done, always will do impact upon how we live with one another. I think if you want a realistic idea of what our future may look like on our current trajectory, I don't think you can do better than Pixar's dystopian vision of the future in Wally. Have you seen this? So in Wally, kind of humanity has buried the Earth in garbage, and they all kind of float off into these intergalactic space um, cruise ships. Kind of every whim is catered for by machines. They just lay there eating and drinking and watching TV all day. I mean, that's a scary thought, but maybe that's where we are headed. 
Now, I do get that I'm a, from a different generation than many of you. I was born in 1980. So depending on how you categorize the generations, I'm either kind of the tail end of Gen X or I'm like just scraping to millennials. Um, but I definitely <laughs> uh, don't belong in the iGen, which is what psychologist Gene Twenge refers to as the internet generation. So those of you born in 1995 or after, those of you who probably went to secondary school already having a Facebook account, you've never known the world without the internet, you probably had a smartphone for the whole of your teenage years. So I get that I have a different generation, uh, I'm from a different generation, so I have a different relationship. But hopefully we can all agree to get together that technology is not neutral. It just isn't. Like it affects us for good and it affects us for bad, but it is not neutral. And the way that we use it forms us in particular ways. And so I do think we have a responsibility to think about how we use technology, how it is forming us, to intentionally work out how we want to use it, rather than just following what everyone else does, rather than following what the tech companies say we should do. Because like, little secret, they don't care about your flourishing, they're just trying to make money off you. Like the reason you spend so much time is because Facebook back in the day worked out how can we create this thing to keep you on and on and on. And most kind of apps are like that. They want you there. They want your attention so they can sell your data and so they can sell things to you. We don't want to go with what they think. We want to work out how should we be using this. So, for example, the Ofcom survey found that 60% of people under 35 look at their phone within five minutes of waking up, and it's the last thing they do before going to sleep. Reaching for our phones in bed, I would imagine, is probably a habit for many of us in this room. And so my question is, do we think that is a good habit or a bad habit? Is that helping us follow Jesus or not? Does that lead to a life of peace or a life of anxiety? In her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Tish Harrison Warren, who's an Anglican priest, she talks about how she came to realize the effect her morning ritual of reaching for her mobile phone on waking was having. So she writes about how if a baby wild animal is found by a human in the world, it's said to be imprinted. So the baby animal sees that person as their mother and sees kind of all good things coming from not just this one person, but kind of humanity in a whole. I mean, there's no way you can reintroduce them back into the world because they rely upon humans for everything good. And she came to realize that that was what was happening to her just with her phone. My morning smartphone ritual was brief, she writes. No more than five or ten minutes, but I was imprinted. My day was imprinted by technology. And like a mountain lion cub attached to her humans, I'd look for all good things to come through glowing screens. And I, I know what that is like. Like entertainment, that is great. But it can't actually do anything to help you be less anxious or less afraid. Yes, it can distract you for a time, which is kind of how I use it often. And I don't think that's a great thing. But it doesn't change anything. It doesn't help us to process or reflect. It doesn't lead us into prayer. It doesn't lead us into kind of real conversations with real people in front of us who love us, who we can kind of work this stuff through with. It doesn't actually even help us to rest well. We think it does, but it doesn't. So whilst reaching for our phones first thing and then having this habit of coming back to it again and again, it may not make us any more anxious, but it's definitely not helping us to be less anxious. And I would say, actually, there's probably good kind of evidence out there that is adding to anxiety. I mean, we could think about this in so many different ways, but let's just think about work. It used to be that if you wanted to take work home with you, you physically had to kind of think about, what do I want to take with me and take it home? But now we carry around in our pocket pretty much all we need to do to keep working 
Which again, this can be incredibly helpful. Like I use flexible working. It is great to kind of schedule my life around kids and stuff like that. It's amazing. I can do this at home. But if we are not careful, we can slip into very bad habits. Which is a huge problem if your work is a source of anxiety for you. Especially if you're looking to your work to validate you, to give you worth. So again, your head can say one thing. Your head can say, God loves me no matter what I do. My relationship with God is a priority for me. I recognize that God is sovereign over all things and in control. I realize that I'm a finite creature that needs to rest and sleep in order to flourish. But a habit of reaching for your phone first thing all the way through the day, reaching for your phone as soon as you're awake to kind of check emails, to check your schedule for the day, kind of responding immediately to every single notification that comes up, and then staying awake late into the night rather than sleeping, that is telling our hearts and our bodies a completely different story. It's telling us that we better keep on striving and achieving, otherwise we won't be loved. It's telling us that our work is so important that getting a head start on it is more important than connecting with God in the morning. That being kept up to date and informed is the most important thing, rather than being fully present with someone. And this is just what Justin Ely found. And that's why he came up with the common rule, which are eight habits that he says kind of he designed for himself to help him love God and love neighbor more. So four of these are daily habits, four are weekly habits, half are about embracing something helpful, half are about rejecting and resisting something harmful. I'm just going to mention three now, but you can look all of these up for free on thecommonrule.org. And again, I'm not saying that you have to do these things. This isn't like Ten Commandments, Common Rule, kind of side by side. This is just, if these things are helpful, then maybe take them on board. And at the very least, think about, would these help me in my life? So number one, scripture before phone in the morning. Before you go out into the world, actually even before you allow the world into your heart and your head through your phone, allow God to speak to you through the scriptures. Before you start comparing your life to the created lives of others, before you let the bad news of the world hit you full force, remind yourself of the good news of the gospel. And that is that God, the creator of everything, out of his great love for us, has come to rescue us from evil and sin and suffering and death through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And he is now at work renewing all things by establishing his kingdom of love and justice and peace through us, his redeemed people, empowered by the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. That is the story we want to remind ourselves of on waking, that we enter the world knowing that this is where we fit a story where love wins out over hate, where goodness wins out over evil. A story where Jesus is the savior of the world, not me. Yes, I, we are co-workers with him, but this doesn't rest on our shoulders, it rests on his. A story where we are so deeply loved and valued that the creator of the heavens and the earth became a man in order to die to rescue us. Do that before you check your emails or your schedule before you scroll through your feeds, before you kind of log on and start seeing what's going on in the world. And I guarantee you'll go out into the world in a different way. You'll go out into the world ready to give out, to kind of work for this kingdom of love and justice and peace, rather than looking for your work out there to give you something you can give yourself to it. And then keep on coming back to this throughout the day. Justin recommends kneeling prayer three times a day. So morning, lunchtime, or halfway through your day, and at some point in the evening after work. And he talks about kind of these moments to physically get down on your knees, to 
to kind of engage with God with your whole body is a sign of submission to him, to his will, to his way. As a sign of recognition, this isn't about me, this is about us together. As a way of remembering that we are not alone in this. And he suggests if you can't easily do this at work, like kneeling isn't appropriate, then just turn your palms up, have a moment that way. Or walk over to a window and look out the window. Anything to help you reconnect with the story, with the God of the story, that you know you're not in this alone. And then he recommends turning your phone and other screens off for at least one hour a day and one day a week. To build into your life times when you are not distracted by anyone calling you or texting you or any kind of notification that you have coming up, anything buzzing in your pocket because your phone is actually turned off. Or Nengi, if that's too much for you, switch it on to do not disturb. Like this is a feature now. I've set mine the same time every single day, six till seven, I'm at home with my family. Nothing gets through it except for the people that I put on a list that can call me. That's it. Like just remove yourself from the distraction. I heard someone comment that all of us are living now like we are heart surgeons on call 24 hours a day. That every notification, this is life or death, or at least that's how we react. Now, I was a firefighter for 10 years. For four or five of those, I carried a pager when I was on duty. Like, literally, that was sometimes life and death. And that is tiring. Like, spending 24 hours with this thing, knowing that at any moment you could be called out when you're asleep, that is really draining. But that's how most of us live at the moment, that we're always on call. And the things that we are on call for are... Did that person like my post of my meal last night? Like nothing even serious at all. Like why do we do that to ourselves? Why do we have so many notifications on our phone distracting us? There's so much research now in the workplace that if you want to do kind of real deep work, creative work, stuff where you need to think, you actually need to turn everything off. Turn off your emails, your notifications, because as soon as they pop up on your screen, your mind goes that way and you're distracted. Why don't we give ourselves this time? I know, like, I know I do this too with my family. Like, I don't know if it's a guy thing. Like, Jax is just much better at this than I am. But be around the girls and like, something will happen and my phone will go and I'll go to it. It's like, am I really thinking that this is more important than them? Actually, that's the way I'm acting. I don't want my girls to grow up like that, thinking their dad thinks that their phone is more important. So it really helps to turn it off. As Joel was talking about a few weeks ago, to have a Sabbath. Like, literally, I don't want to touch my phone. I mean, this is super hard. I'm still, like, early days. I'm, like, destined, kind of riding this bike and falling off. But I think this is a good habit to get into, that I can focus my time and attention on the people right in front of me. Yes, it's important to be informed about stuff out there, but right now, I want to be right here. And then the other thing, just don't take this into your bedroom. Like, you don't need your phone in there. Like, if you're worried about alarm clocks, buy an alarm clock. They still exist. You can still get them. <laughs> this might be the best 10 pounds you ever spend. Like, put your phone to sleep somewhere else. In The TechWise Family by Andy Crouch, which is another great book about how to kind of manage our tech, he um, outlines 10 TechWise commitments that his family has adopted. And alongside commitment number three, turning off all screens at least one hour a day, one day a week, and he says one week a year, Number four is he suggests making sure your phones and other screens go to sleep at least an hour before you do, and they wake up after you as well. And there's so much research now about the blue light from phones affecting our sleep so that when we do actually get to sleep, we have worse sleep because of it. Like, we, we don't need it in your bedroom. You don't want it to be the first thing out of habit. And so if it is a habit to reach for it, put it out of reach. Like, you need to build stuff in that will help you in this way. So they are just three of the eight habits. And maybe I have the band back. 
In some ways, they are not creative, they're not unique. But in this day and age, I do think they are pretty radical. There won't be a lot of your friends thinking about this in the same way. And probably for most of us, like I say, they're going to take a lot of practice. Just this week, I had some super bad news. And so do you know what the first thing I did on the train home from this? I bought a packet of four cakes, and I ate them on the way home. And then I got in, and I was like, I don't want to talk about this. I'm just going to watch a movie. And like, I think at the time this is helpful, but that's a bad habit that I've gotten into. That's my default. What I really need to do is process. I don't want to do that because that's painful. Like, I know that I need to work through this. But right now, I just want to eat and watch TV. Like, that is a habit that I've fallen off into. And it's like, ugh, get back up again. Get back on the bike and start doing this. And so I recommend, like, talk to someone about this this week. Like, if you're not brave enough to do the screen grab, and to be honest, I wouldn't be doing that. <laughs> so, like, you could do that. But just talk to someone. Talk to one of your friends. Talk to people you're doing life with. And say, like, how am I using my phone? Is this what I want to be doing with my time? Is this helpful to me? This is what Justin says about forming new habits. He says, it is challenging to make new habits. I won't tell you that the common rule is not hard. It is hard. But that doesn't tell you much. Anything worth doing is hard. What I'm trying to tell you is, it's freeing. Isn't that what you want? To be free? And not free in the world that our culture says to be free, which is just free to do what you want. Free to be the person you were made to be. Free to engage with the world in the way that God made you to engage with the world. Not with fear, not with anxiety, but with faith and with courage. Free to kind of take the world on, head on, knowing that Jesus is with you and for you. That is what I want, and I know that actually this can get in the way of that. This can stop me connecting with God, stop me processing, stop me thinking about these things. And so I'd encourage you this week, have a conversation with someone about this. And as, kind of, as much of this is about habit formation and ongoing stuff, there are moments like this, when we get to be together as community in the presence of God, when we get to say, come Holy Spirit, Prince of Peace. And so you may be here this morning and you may feel like there's so much stuff going on. That yes, you feel anxious. Yes, you feel fear. And I'm telling you, right now, you can have an encounter with God that can change that for you. Change, like in a real way, it can change that for you right now. So I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to worship. We're going to sing about this God and his love for us, express our love to him. And I'm just going to pray for us that the Prince of Peace will come and minister to us in this moment. Jesus, Prince of Peace, we thank you that you came to rescue and to restore, that you are at work renewing. And I just pray for all of us in this room who are dealing with big things at the moment, things that they are afraid of, things that cause anxiety to rise within them. Lord, I know that that's many of us with many different things, and we just want to come and we want to once again change our perspective by looking at you to turn our face to you and to remember again your love for us, you with us in the darkness, through the valley of the shadow of death. I thank you that we have nothing to fear when you are with us. Lord, bad things may happen. Bad things happen all over the world to all types of people. We know that. But I thank you that you are with us in this. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would fall upon us and give us your peace. I pray right now you will come and do a work in us. And I pray that you would give us the courage, the intention to make what we're doing here, coming to you for peace, a part of our daily lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.